0: Just so you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared.
2: episode 135 missing war baby here with another episode of murderous minors we have sort of a theme this week missing people as in cases of suspected homicide that began with a missing persons report two such cases hit the media right at the end of august and the accused juveniles have already been formally charged as adults just as many people were starting their day 10-year-old Namila Turner-Moore was reported missing from Saginaw, Michigan's east side at around 6.15 a.m. on Tuesday, August 30, 2022. Then, the following day, 16-year-old Gabriel Davies was found to be missing 2,000 miles away in Olympia, Washington, when his dad told police that the teen had left for football practice on Wednesday afternoon but had never arrived. In Namila's case, the 10-year-old Stone Elementary School fourth grader who wanted to be a doctor when she grew up simply disappeared and just wasn't there to go to the bus stop. The bus stop was located near the home of her mother's ex, and her mother stated that, quote, the only reason she went back that night is because she had school the next day and the bus picked them up there every morning. The them she referred to includes her daughter, as well as at least one other child that we know of, 14-year-old Jamion Peterson, reportedly her stepbrother and the son of the homeowner. When Peterson's father could not find Namila, he called the little girl's biological father, who didn't have her either, and police were alerted at 6.15 a.m. Investigators descended on South 12th Street and frantically searched for hours, Namila's mother suffers from Crohn's disease and was in the hospital recovering from two recent stomach surgeries when her daughter was reported missing. She received the alarming phone call while lying in her hospital bed and raced to the scene, arriving while still wearing a patient gown and slippers. The devastated mother, who just had twins four months ago, told MLive.com that, quote, as soon as I made it to the scene is when they found her. According to police, quote, law enforcement started searching the area and unfortunately located her body a short distance away from the home. By 11 a.m., Namila had been found in an overgrown lot at the end of South 12th and Ansley streets, and police are saying that they believe that she was killed there. They don't think any weapons were used, and there's no evidence thus far of any sexual assault. Soon after, Namila's stepbrother was arrested on suspicion of her murder. By Wednesday morning, August 31, 2022, 14 year old Jamion Peterson was in custody. Namila's mother and Peterson's one time stepmother told the media I put clothes on his back. He was like another child of mine. I would have never thought he would have done nothing like this. But then again, you can't put nothing past nobody, and you can't judge a book by its cover. Her mother wanted everyone to know that, quote, my baby was everything. She was jolly, smiley-faced. She had personality. She had so many friends. Everybody wanted to be around her. She just wanted to love on her sisters and brothers because she knew she was the oldest. She just was lovable, and she just wanted them in her face all the time. Namila was just 20 days away from her 11th birthday, September eighteenth, twenty 2022, which is also a significant date for long-term Saginaw residents because it also happens to be the 30th anniversary of the day another little girl from that neighborhood went missing. According to Cole Waterman at MLive.com, eight-year-old Shamonica Brown lived near the overgrown lot at 12th and Ansley in the early 1990s, and on September 18, 1992, she went missing from the playground where she was hanging out with her friends. Four days later, her lifeless body was discovered near the entrance of a Catholic church on 13th Street. She was found in a planter concealed by the bush. No one was ever arrested for Shamonica's murder, and the only persons of interest police ever had have long since died. One of them within months of the murder in 1992, and the other over 10 years later, in 2003. Peterson has been charged with open murder, which means he can be convicted of first- or second-degree murder, and those charges automatically place the minor in adult court, per Michigan law. A first-degree murder conviction would result in a life-without-parole sentence, while a second-degree conviction would see him sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. That's what's been released so far, and Peterson has a preliminary hearing set for September 21, 2022. I've included the link for the GoFundMe for Namila's family in the show notes and on Twitter at KillerKidsPod. As I was following Peterson's Michigan arrest, it became public that a 16-year-old Olympia Washington High School student was missing. Here's Thurston County Sheriff John Snaza.
0: About 5.30, we received a report of an abandoned vehicle at the 16,100 block of Tilly Road. And it was reported that the keys were in ignition and the driver's side door was open. We had deputies respond to the area. Uh, do a vehicle registration check, and we learned that uh, calling the registered owner, the registered owner said that uh, his son was uh, supposed to be uh, at football practice. Um, so at that time, uh, there was no juvenile around the vehicle. So we uh, conducted a search via using Washington State Patrol uh, Aviation Unit, who conducted a search of the area. And then we also used our canine. Uh, to, to check around the vehicle as well to see if we could pick up a scent of uh, an individual leaving that area. Um, during that whole time, we also received phone calls of a, uh, a male walking north on Tilly Road towards miller Sylvania State Park. Um, we had about five or six reports, and one individual even said that he had spoke to an, uh, the male individual who uh, said that he was fine. Uh, We had uh, detectives and FBI respond to uh, the registered owner's address to talk to uh, the family members. And uh, during that time, uh, we were contacted by Pierce County uh, Sheriff's Office for other investigations and interests.
2: Investigators searched Davy's room for clues as to his whereabouts and did see a 9mm shell casing at the time, but didn't find it relevant to that investigation. The search continued into the following morning, Thursday, September 1st, which was the same morning that deputies in neighboring Pierce County got a call requesting a welfare check be done on 51-year-old Daniel McCaw, who hadn't shown up for work for his past four shifts. According to the Declaration of Probable Cause filed on September 6, authorities also learned from the caller that the missing man had been in a long-term relationship with the mother of Gabriel Davies, the teen from the nearby county who'd been missing since the previous afternoon deputies smelled the odor of decomposition upon arrival and forced entry into the orting washington home where the man was found deceased in his laundry room on the floor and surrounded by a large quantity of blood one caliber shell casing, one 9mm shell casing, and one live 45 caliber round were ultimately located, as well as, quote, blood spatter patterns on the wall, while not completely analyzed at the time, were consistent with cast-off blood and with homicidal violence. No gun was found around Daniel, meaning that he didn't shoot himself, and two guns were presumed to be missing from the home because two empty holsters were found, indicating that two people and two guns were most likely going to be involved. A home surveillance system with a digital video recorder was also collected from the scene and would be integral to the investigation. The medical examiner has so far determined that Daniel McCaw had a bullet hole roughly three inches behind his right ear, as well as a second bullet in his abdomen. He had nine presumed stab wounds. One was found in his right shoulder, one was found in his left armpit, and seven were found in his chest. Daniel's boss wasn't the only individual to connect the deceased man to Gabriel Davies because the father of the teen's best friend also alerted authorities to a connection between the two. The probable cause document states that the father of 16-year-old Justin Yoon, quote, claimed to have information regarding a homicide involving Davies that occurred in Pierce County. Given what they knew from McCaw's boss, they realized what this crime probably was, the violent death of the man they discovered earlier that morning. Davies was still missing, and his family was interviewed as part of that investigation, giving police vital information regarding his movements over the previous week. They told police that the weekend before, which was August 27th and 28th, they had gone to Panther Lake in Mason County, Washington, and stayed in a cabin with the family of Davies' best friend, the Eunes. The court document states that, quote, family members reported that Yun and Davies had left the cabin on August 28th, a little after midnight, and returned to the cabin at about 6.30 a.m. They left the Panther Lake location again at about 11.45 a.m. and did not return. Later on the same day that Daniel McCall was found murdered, Davies was finally located by deputies on Thursday, September 1st at 10 p.m., about three miles from where his truck was found abandoned.
0: Later that evening, he showed up around the, the 13,000 block of Tilly Road later uh, on Thursday evening the 1st.
2: Court documents indicate that, quote, Gabriel Davies initially told a detective that he could not remember what had happened to him or where he had been during his disappearance. When Davies was located, he was wearing shorts but did not have on a shirt, shoes, or socks. Thurston County Sheriff's detectives noted, however, that Davies had no injuries to his feet or lower extremities that would be consistent with having been walking through the woods for the 36 hours that he had been missing. Defendant Davies admitted to damaging his own cell phone because he was afraid that the police were going to find what was on it. He later said that he could not say what had happened to him because people were
0: going to hurt him. He showed up at an address and uh, law enforcement was contacted and we had uh, detectives go out and uh, speak with him and we were able to take him home to his family uh when uh he was located he was located by himself and uh he uh he had contacted the homeowner and uh the homeowner immediately called 911 I, according to the statements he he walked there so he he explained that he was out wandering around for the last 24 hours
2: Investigators next went to the DVR and evidence from the murder scene and zeroed in on the time frame during which Yoon and Davies were known to have been gone from the Panther Lake cabin. The court document states that investigators quote noted that at approximately 1.59 a.m. on August 28th, two suspects that appeared to be young skinny males approached the victim's house from the backyard. One male appeared to have pepper spray on his belt. The suspects crawled into the residence through the dog door. The victim can be seen exiting his detached garage at approximately 2.41 a.m. He then stumbled into the residence. At 2.47 a.m., the victim's dog suddenly ran out the dog door. One minute later, both suspects exited the residence through the side door. The suspects ran back and forth to the garage before fleeing at approximately 2.52 a.m. Both suspects appeared to be carrying items, including a possible handgun. Both suspects appeared to be wearing gloves. Additionally, both appeared to be carrying something away from the scene to include a military-style ammunition can or similarly-sized toolbox. The images of the, quote, young skinny males were compared to and tentatively matched Yoon and Davies driver's license photos, and investigators had also begun receiving phone calls from their fathers. Yoon's father had called twice, and now Gabriel Davies' father called on Friday, September 2nd, claiming that, quote, Gabe was involved in McCaw's death. The father said that his son was approached by the victim's biker buddies to steal something from the victim's residence. He further stated that they threatened his son with harm if he didn't do it. Davies then confided in Yoon, and the two of them developed a plot to steal the item from a safe. On Saturday night or Sunday morning, the two went to the victim's house and snuck in through the doggy door. The father reported that his son knew where the victim's gun was kept and that when the victim came into the house, Yoon ran after him and stabbed him and stated that then Gabe heard a gunshot. He reported his son told him that he went out to the garage to get the item out of the safe when he heard a second gunshot. The father reported that his son told him the firearm used in the incident was ditched near his home. The man also told police that, quote, his son claimed the victim's biker buddies followed him on Wednesday and pulled him out of his vehicle at the location where his vehicle was found. Defendant Davies told his father that the blood in his truck was from the biker smashing his face against the interior of his car. They also reportedly put him in a suburban and drove him around, roughing him up before releasing him. The father also said that his son told him that the motorcycle club members took his shirt and shoes and then purportedly went through his truck looking for whatever item had been stolen from the victim. Defendant Davies told his father that they never actually stole anything investigators executed a search warrant on both teens homes and arrested them on suspicion of murder at around 8 pm on friday september 2nd 2022 a shocking twist in this missing person story that sent social media into a frenzy no further details were made public until after labor day when Yoon and davies went to court and were charged as adults with first-degree murder second-degree murder, first-degree burglary, and two counts of second-degree unlawful possession of a firearm. Court documents state that Davies and his attorney took police to where he and Yoon had dumped the two guns they stole from the holsters, Daniel McCaw's guns that they allegedly used to kill him in his own home, where Davies himself had reportedly lived for years. One was a nine millimeter and the other a 45 caliber handgun and they were found together in the ammo box that the young skinny males took with them on the security footage Judy was boring hello
1: then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com
2: It's my little escape
1: now Judy's the life of the party
2: Oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon
1: whoa take it easy Judy <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Family members of DVs set up a GoFundMe for him on Saturday, September 3rd to aid his legal fund. It had a goal amount of $25,000 and raised over $20,000 in less than 24 hours before it was shut down by the site and all money refunded. The account violates GoFundMe's terms of service, which does not allow funds to be raised for the legal defense of alleged crimes associated with violence, among many other things. Bail has been set at $1 million each for Justin Yoon and Gabriel Davies, and the charging documents have been made public. This story has already been playing out in the media since the minute Davies' father reported him missing, and no one involved seems to take issue with releasing tons of details to the public. Though the biker gang theory has now been thrown into the mix, investigators had initially gleaned otherwise from the evidence, stating during the search that, quote, the info we have thus far is that he drove to this location on his own, and he walked from the vehicle on his own. Both Yoon and Davies are being held at Reman Hall Juvenile Detention Center and are next set to be in court on October 6, 2022. About 20 miles east of Minnesota's eastern border sits the tiny rural town of Cushing, Wisconsin, a quiet area from which no one would expect an entire family to go missing. But back on April 22, 1991, that's exactly what seemed to happen. It was a statistically safe place with a low violent crime rate where hunting cabin break-ins made up a good deal of police reports. So when 35-year-old Rick Brenizer, his 31-year-old girlfriend Ruth Berenson, her daughters, 10-year-old Heidi and 7-year-old Mindy and the couple's daughter together, 5-year-old Crystal, were all just suddenly and inexplicably gone, the community was rightfully concerned. The only member of the household accounted for was Rick's 15-year-old son, Bruce Bernizer, a St. Croix High School 11th grader who was the individual to report his family as missing. 15-year-old Bruce Berniser was an only child for the first several years of his life, and after his parents broke up, his father said that he'd never get married again. His mother remarried, and although he didn't live with her, he gained a stepbrother named Jesse who was just a bit older than him and with whom he'd grow alarmingly close over the years. Bernizer lived with his father Ricky and his father's girlfriend Ruth in a rural mobile home, along with his two stepsisters and one half-sister, and had been vocal in his distaste for the rustic, quote, backwoods living conditions they endured. Video of the inside of the trailer from that time show a messy, cluttered, and cramped living space, which had no running water or electricity. Investigators would later speak to those who knew or had worked with Ricky, and all shared their respect and admiration for the man who worked hard and took a great deal of pride in doing so. But Brenizer claimed that his father was abusive, and he didn't like Ruth either. He hated living with them, something he not only shared with Jesse but also journaled about extensively, investigators would later learn. Bernizer's mother claimed that she was just about to get custody when the family went missing but that her son backed out because he was scared of his father and the repercussions of their decision. Ruth's mother told police after her disappearance that her daughter wasn't so fond of her boyfriend's son either and that she had allegedly recently given Ricky Brunizer an ultimatum. If his son didn't move out, she and her daughters would. It was Jesse who ended up giving police the most information, telling them that Brenizer had stayed at his house over the weekend and had told him about his plan to murder his family the day before they'd allegedly gone missing. Jesse said he didn't believe him and that he didn't let any adults know. Instead, he testified later that he provided him with ammunition and advised him to commit the murders outside, adding, quote, I told him what I would do in my situation. The next day was Monday, April 22nd, and they both went to school as normal, but that evening, Jesse got a call from Bernizer saying that the deadly deed was done and that they were all dead. He said Bernizer told him that after school, he'd waited for the school bus to arrive carrying Ruth's daughters, then used bailing wire to tie up 7-year-old Mindy and 10-year-old Heidi Berenson, lying in wait until the rest of the family got home. When he heard the girls planning how to escape, Bernizer took them behind the house and shot them both in the head. He then waited at an open window until his father arrived and saw him, asking why he had the rifle. The teen reportedly replied, quote, Hi, Dad, before shooting him once in the head and once in the chest, less than 50 feet from the house. Vernizer found Ruth as she tried to call for help, unable to because he cut the wires and shot her in the back of the head after she dashed out the front door. Five-year-old Crystal was killed last as she ran toward her dead sisters. That's when Brunizer called Jesse, and instead of alerting his parents or the authorities, Brunizer's stepbrother became an accomplice in the cover-up. According to police, he rode his bike over and claimed to be shocked at what he saw when he arrived at Ricky and Ruth's. Their bullet-riddled bodies, plus the bodies of all three girls outside, a sight he said made him vomit. He was somehow able to gather his composure enough after that to help move them into the family station wagon with the help of a wheelbarrow and used a shovel to get rid of bloody areas and other biological evidence outside the house. They drove the bodies three miles west to a remote area near a trout stream about five miles from Cushing in Sterling Township, Wisconsin. They poured gasoline all over the car and ignited it, starting an inferno that so badly engulfed the family's remains that a biological anthropologist had to eventually assist in the identifications. He also determined that all of the bodies had been mutilated, and that at least one of the girls was decapitated and her skull crushed, likely by the point-blank rifle blast used to murder her. The Associated Press reported that investigators determined that a machete or corn knife was also likely used to mutilate the bodies before they were burned, though they were so horribly damaged that their causes of death were mostly assumed. Jesse testified at trial that he and Bernizer had made equal decisions on how to dispose of the bodies and clean up the crime scene. Once the car was ablaze, they left and went their separate ways. They didn't speak until school the next day, where Jesse said he couldn't sleep the night before while Bernizer said that he did, because his house was finally quiet. That was the day the pair went home together and Bernizer's mother continued to try and contact Ricky and Ruth. No one answered, and the following day, April 24th, she reported the family missing and a full-scale air and land search took place but found nothing. Investigators tried to recreate the family's last day, having to begin with a lie. Bruce Burnizer had started out lying by telling his mother that his family had gone to buy lumber but never returned. The store had no record of a purchase made by them in the past few days, indicating that they probably never made it to Minneapolis, as the concerned son had said. Once they waded through the residence, investigators found no evidence of foul play, and all the while, those in Cushing and Sterling Township were doing all they could to make sure that the young lone survivor was all right. Several weeks went by with no sign of the missing five until May 11, 1991, when the burned-out station wagon was stumbled upon by an unlucky fisherman heading down to the stream. According to Jesse, they had just been back at the car within the last few days because Bernizer wanted to make sure that the bodies had been sufficiently destroyed. Jesse admitted to holding a duffel bag into which his stepbrother placed a small skull and other bone fragments he had shoveled from the car. The vehicle's condition made it extremely difficult for an immediate identification of the victims to take place, and teeth had to be used to identify Ricky and Ruth definitively, while the remains of three children whose age ranges matched their daughters were also found. Investigators concluded that the family had been murdered before they were driven there and that the fire was arson designed to destroy evidence. The media had been mumbling under their breath since the station wagon was found that the family could have fallen victim to satanic sacrifice because of the fire and since some graffiti had cropped up in Polk County. The message, quote, devil worship, death by fire, had been spray painted on the wall of a Masonic temple roughly thirty miles away, but it was investigated, and no ties to a satanic cult were ever found. All contacts of the family and of Bruce Bernizer were interviewed, too, to try and find some motives or enemies, but nothing about Ricky or Ruth's lives seemed likely to spawn revenge murder. As far as what had been going on in recent days, Jesse's girlfriend told investigators that tensions were high between the stepbrothers and it was only getting worse as they spoke to more and more of their friends and family. The girlfriend also said when questioned that she heard them talking about the deaths as though they knew exactly what had happened. The more interviews they did, the more suspicious detectives got, as Brneiser's friends described him selling off his family's possessions, bragging about now having three cars and spending his father's coin collection at the arcade. They went to Bruneiser's mother's house in St. Croix Falls to interview Jesse, one week after the bodies had been found. He was immediately defensive and his father ended up telling police that they weren't going to speak to them anymore without a lawyer present. A few hours later, Jesse, his dad, and his new attorney turned up and told them everything he allegedly knew about what had happened to Ricky Ruth and the girls. He gave them details that hadn't been released in the media, and once they were confident that he hadn't helped with the actual murders, they offered him immunity and requested he lead them to crucial evidence. When detectives got a warrant and searched Jesse's home, they found Bernizer's journal in which he'd written that he wished his father was dead. This gave them enough evidence to arrest Bruce Bernizer for the murder of his five family members. Jesse led them to the station wagon's buried license plates behind his barn and the duffel bag they'd buried by the burn pit near the cornfield. The personalized thirty 30 caliber lever-action marlin rifle used in the killings was retrieved from a pond by the highway, where Jesse had told Bernizer to throw it. A bullet from the scene ended up matching the suspected murder weapon. And other evidence there, such as bone fragments, teeth, and blood, corroborated Jesse's version of events. Brenizer said nothing when he was arrested and transferred to juvenile detention, which shocked his small community. He was soon charged as an adult, and a few months later, in September 1991, his attorneys appealed that decision, finally revealing in their filing some sort of motivation for the murders. In the brief sent to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, his attorney wrote, quote, It was the culmination of a lifetime of abuse. He was ashamed of his home life and hated living with his father. The motive for the killings was self-preservation. He called his client the victim of, quote, classic abusers, who took their problems and their anger out on him and forced him to live in a home with no electricity or functioning plumbing. In December 1991, the appeals court sided with the original judge and clarified what they saw as his reasoning, writing that, quote, here the court did not weigh the child's best interests equally with the public's best interests. Instead, it properly considered the child's best interests as paramount, but also considered the type and seriousness of the offense. Although his public defender tried to get the Wisconsin Supreme Court to review Bernizer's waiver to adult court, they declined in April 1992. The judge referenced Jesse's account in his decision to send Bernizer to trial, saying that, quote, the circumstantial evidence here is compelling and the testimony of Jesse regarding this case is plausible. Bruneiser's public defender felt differently, of course, responding that, quote, at this point, we deny every aspect of the state's case, calling Jesse's depiction of the alleged events, quote, implausible, forensically speaking, impossible. They began hinting that an insanity defense could be forthcoming. When it came time to enter pleas on his five counts of first-degree intentional homicide, Bruneiser stood stoic and said nothing, forcing the judge to enter pleas of innocent and innocent by way of mental defect for him on June first, 1992. His murder trial was ultimately scheduled for May 10, 1993, but just weeks before on April 23rd, Bernizer withdrew those pleas as part of a plea agreement, with the prosecutor saying that it was justified since the defense did have enough evidence to prove Bernizer was likely insane during the murders. In exchange for pleading guilty to two counts of first-degree intentional homicide for killing Ricky and Ruth, Brenizer received two consecutive life sentences with parole eligibility. The judge didn't set an eligibility date, instead telling him that, quote, you have some influence as to what happens in regards to parole. I want to hold out some incentive for you. In relation to the murders of Crystal, Heidi, and Mindy, Brenizer entered pleas of guilty but insane at the time and was committed to the Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison, Wisconsin, for life. If the time were to come that Brenizer was deemed no longer a danger to himself and others, he would be released to prison to complete his consecutive life sentences for the murders of Ricky and Ruth. He went to Mendota in June 1993, and it was speculated at the time that Brenizer's earliest parole eligibility date would be 2016. Two years after he was committed, in 1995, he made the news again, this time for a hospital policy that allowed field trips where the criminally insane mingled with the public a local reporter had witnessed numerous chaperoned outings in the spring of nineteen ninety five that saw patients bowling shopping at the mall and dining in restaurants but when bernizer was spotted at the movies the practice came under scrutiny The institution insisted that socializing the patients was essential to their recovery, and that while, quote, public safety overrides anything we do here, we need to normalize the illness by getting people in the community so they can experience their healing in real life. It's extremely important, or they are even less safe when they get out. Within a few weeks of the Wisconsin State Journal article breaking the story, Mendota announced that they changed the policy and patients who also had to serve a prison term became ineligible for off-site trips. Bruneiser didn't make the news again until June 2017, when he won an appeal he had filed in 2014 because in 2013, he was transferred to Wampum State Prison, even though his life sentence at Mendota wasn't finished. After spending four years in prison, Bruce Bruneiser, who is now 47, was returned to Mendota Mental Health Institute, where he remains. His parole eligibility date is currently listed as January 18, 2023. As always, thanks for listening. Be back soon with an all-new episode, but until then, lovelies, don't be scared.